It started out as a relatively straightforward bicycle journey along the fabled Heraclean Way. That's the route Hercules is said to have traveled to the ends of the earth, from Portugal all the way to the Alps. What Graham Robb didn't expect is that this route would lead him to the lost world of the Celts and Druids from more than 2,000 years ago. That was back before Roman invaders pushed the Celts north and destroyed much of the evidence of their advanced society. His latest book is called The Discovery of Middle-Earth, and it maps out the lost world of the Celts, a sophisticated society that Graham Robb contends has been overlooked for too long. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. So your book is sort of based on Celts get too little credit. Who were the Celts, and why do they get too little credit? Well, the Celts were really just the majority of the population of Western Europe from about 800 B.C., on. And we can't, we can't really say the Celts were one particular group of people because there were Celts in the extreme southwest of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. And at the same time, there were Celtic tribes, tribes who spoke a Celtic language, way out to the east beyond Switzerland in, in the, the eastern Alps. Hmm. And the Romans themselves didn't really know who the Celts were. But it's great when you look at these historical maps and you can see how different peoples were bullied and pushed around over the centuries. And I've got this image of Celts sort of populating much of Europe, but then more aggressive people came and they pushed Celts to the less desirable fringes. And today we think of Celtic uh, peoples in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Brittany, Cornwall, and so on. When we think of later history, is that where the Celts ended up? Yeah, that's true. That is a, a much later development. They were pushed out towards the fringes of Europe. And that's when the Celts began to look like a distinct ethnic group, whereas before they were as, as diverse as the, the population of Europe. It was with the uh, invasions and the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons in Britain that the people originally defined as Celtic were pushed out towards the, the fringe, the less productive parts of uh, Western Europe, in particular Brittany, Wales, Ireland, and, and northern Scotland, western Scotland. Would they have related languages today? Yes, they do have related languages, and those languages are related to much older Celtic languages. What are the Celtic languages that survive today? Uh, there's Breton in Brittany, and then the various forms of Celtic that are spoken in Wales and Ireland and Scotland. And uh, the original Celtic language of continental Europe became extinct by about 600 AD, and no one really knows mm. why it disappeared so completely. And by then, there were just a few people in remote rural areas who still spoke the ancient language. We know very little about that original Celtic language. In your book, uh, well, in my mind, Celtic people are these hardscrabble people eking out an existence in hardscrabble lands, and they're, they're kind of crude and... Uh, in your book, you, you mentioned that's really the result of Roman propaganda. What do you mean by that? Well, the Romans liked to think of the Celts as mud-smeared hooligans who were a threat to the Roman Empire. When the Romans conquered large parts of Western Europe, their aim was not to spread civilization. Their aim was to protect Rome and to create a, a safe buffer zone between uh, the wild barbarians of the rest of Europe and Rome. And when they marched into Gaul and then Britain, they were primarily interested in wealth, which took the form of precious metals and particularly slaves. And there was some opposition to the, the genocidal tactics 
of the Romans in Rome itself. And so it was important for the Romans to say they're not really human, they're like animals. And uh, fortunately, we know from the archaeological record, but also from Greek writers, that that's a, a travesty. It, it wasn't like that at all. Well, you know, when you go to London, you see that dramatic statue of Queen Boadicea. She was a Celt that stood up against the Romans, wasn't she? Yes, she led a rebellion against Rome. And that is a typical Celtic trait, that it was a woman who became the leader. They had a matrilineal succession in a lot of parts of, of Celtic Europe. This was particularly shocking to the Romans, that a woman could single-handedly destroy the three main centers of Roman power in Britain. And it was presented as a kind of wild rampage. This is what happened if the passion of a Celtic woman was uh, unleashed. Yeah. But in fact, it was a very highly organized, well-supplied military campaign because you can't wipe out three major Roman towns in a very short space of time without very careful planning. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the Celtic world uh, with Graeme Robb. Graeme's written a book called The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Mapping the Lost World of the Celts. So, Graeme, when you think about Celts being victims of propaganda, I guess the flip side of that is they're more sophisticated than we give them credit for. In your research for writing The Discovery of Middle-Earth, what dimensions of Celtic culture did you find that were impressive because they were so sophisticated? The discovery that really most pleased me was the temples of the Celts all over Europe took a very particular shape. It looks like a rectangle that's been drawn by a child or a person who can't draw straight. And this seems to fit in with Roman propaganda. They didn't mm -hmm. bother having a tidy square or rectangle. But actually, those rectangles are a, a particular shape that's produced when you draw an ellipse, which is the, the shape of the sun's yearly course through yeah. the sky. And that's very typically... Celtic, that what seems to be insignificant and uncontrolled is in fact part of a pattern. And if you're in on the secret, you realize what the pattern means, but you're only shown a little part of it. That's amazing, because reading through your book, it's filled with math. I mean, these maps, you can draw these grand schemes on the maps, and it was it just can't be accidental. They were quite sophisticated in their, in their mapping and in their, in their math. Yes, they were. For us, it's not complicated math at all. It's basic Euclidean geometry, which they seem to have learned from the Greeks because the big influence on the Celtic world early on, before Rome was an empire, came from Greece. Graham Robbs, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves right now, telling us what he uncovered about the Celts of long ago, which he outlines in The Discovery of Middle-Earth, published by Norton. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Steve's on the line calling in from Albany in Oregon. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I do have a question. Uh, I'm an engineer, and my wife and I are in the early stages of planning a trip to, to Scotland, and we're very interested in the science and engineering of ancient peoples, and so we're interested in what sites would be good to see, especially sites that you can get to without having to having a car. Not having a car is a great advantage, really. Um, if you have a bicycle, that's quite useful. But if you're going to Scotland, I think the place to start is the line from Glasgow to Edinburgh, where the Romans built the Antonine Wall. And the interesting thing about the places along the Antonine Wall, which looks like a Roman frontier like Hadrian's Wall, is that a lot of them had Celtic names and were there 
before the Romans. There are very few Celtic remains actually to be seen on the ground. But if you go along the Antonine Wall, you know that you'll be following a Celtic path that crossed northern Britain at its narrowest point. And depending on which direction you go in, you could go to either the museum in Glasgow or the wonderful National Museum in Edinburgh, where you'll find all sorts of wonderful, almost microscopic objects of Celtic art. And as an engineer, you'll, you'll appreciate, probably better than some art historians, that these objects, which seem to be based on an individual's fantasy and imagination, are actually based on mathematical patterns, very precise yeah. geometric patterns. And once you work out the relatively simple intersecting circles that produce the pattern, uh, you realise that you're just seeing, as with the temples, a little part of, of that pattern. So I think if you're interested in Celts, you've, you've picked one of the best countries to go to. Hey, Steve, you've got some interesting sightseeing coming up in Scotland. Thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to reading the book, too. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating book. Best wishes, Steve, on your trip. Yeah, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graeme Robb in his book, The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Graeme, when you look at a museum and you find these exquisite bits of Celtic uh, jewelry or whatever, ballpark, what century would that be usually? Well, the classical period of Celtic art is pretty much first century B.C. And when did the Romans come into Britain? Um, well, Julius Caesar had a, a raiding party or two uh, around about 55, 54 B.C., but the first serious invasion was 43 AD, and that's when the Romans moved into Britain very, very quickly. So the Celts flourished until the Romans came in the first century. What did the Romans see? I mean, if you were there, a Roman, coming across the English Channel, trying to establish the Roman Empire and establish Britannia and setting up your base in Londinium, what did they see when it comes to the existing uh, society? Well, we now know, thanks to greatly improved archaeological techniques, that instead of finding the barbarians that uh, they'd heard about from Roman writers. They found people who lived in towns with streets uh, that were divided into different districts, residential and in industrial and religious. And they would have been surprised probably to find that uh, they could get red wine from mm. Italy and even Greece. And they could even snack on Mediterranean olives. And it's only recently that archaeologists have dug down low enough to discover that towns did exist in Britain before the Romans, despite what Caesar said. He said they just fortify their tangled woods and uh -huh. call it a town. To what degree did the fact that the Celts did not write down their history and the Romans did shape what we understand today? Yeah, it had a huge effect, and, and also the fact that uh, the Romans built in stone, whereas the Celts usually built in timber. Mm -hmm. And structural archaeologists have shown that some of the timber structures of the Celts, some of their wooden mansions, were greater feats of engineering than any Greek or Roman temple. And in fact, the Druids, who were the intelligentsia of the Celts, were literate. It's often said they were illiterate because they passed on their, their knowledge in their schools in the form of verse, which was memorized by mm. the pupils. But it was a very literate society because writing implements have been found all over the Celtic world. And in fact, one of our main sources on the extinct continental Celtic language is uh, curse tablets and love tokens that were etched by relatively uneducated people. And one of the very few complete sentences of ancient Celtic that we know says, uh, Nata Wimpi Kormida, which means pretty girl, give me some beer. 
This was written to her fiancé. So even relatively uneducated people were literate and knew how to read and write. Now that's a sophisticated society. Pretty girl, give me some beer. Yeah. <laughs> I like and it. And it was obviously uh, not quite as sophisticated as asking for wine, but we know they, they also love Greek wine. Now, in your, <laughs> in your studies, Graham, were there any characters that you just were really struck by? It just seems to me that in prehistoric or, or societies that didn't have a, a developed sort of written history, you don't really know the characters, the personalities. Who's your favorite Celtic personality? Well, the, the one I found most impressive was a man called Divikiarchus, whose name means the Avenger. And he was Caesar's best friend in Gaul because his tribe was briefly allied to Rome. And he was also, we know from another source, a druid. And far from being one of these uh, mystic, muddled, white-robed priests, he was a diplomat and a politician. He was one of the very few non-Romans to address the Roman Senate. And he stayed in Rome in Cicero's house on the Palatine Hill and wrote a eulogy to his host. He was also a philosopher and he was a scientist, he was a mathematician and a diplomat. You know, he was in some ways more cosmopolitan than many Roman politicians and yet he was a druid. And from a history point of view, he happened to be friends of Caesar's and they wrote about him in Rome and we know about him today. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yes. As you say, there are few individuals that we know about from this period. Fascinating. Graham Robb has written a remarkable study of the lost world of the ancient Celts, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book is called The Discovery of Middle Earth. It was released in the UK with the title The Ancient Paths, Discovering the Lost Map of Celtic Europe. Jake's joining us now on the phone at 877-333-7425, calling in from Bend in Oregon. Hi, Jake. Hi, Graham. Hi, Rick. Now, when I was in Ireland, I was told that the Irish Celts adopted Christianity so readily because there were so many correlations between the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and the early Christian Celtic beliefs. Could you kind of describe some of the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and then maybe comment on that idea that perhaps there was enough of a correlation that it made adoption of Christianity an easy adoption? Yes, you're exactly right, and that's a very well-made point, because there are very direct correlations between Druidism, or Celtic religion, and the early forms of Christianity. For example, I mentioned just now the elliptical form, the implicit elliptical form that their temples took. And we know from some of the early saints, in particular St. Patrick, that uh, one of the early Christian rituals involved processing sunwise in the direction of the sun around the temple or the well that was to be consecrated. And that's something that clearly comes directly from the Celts. And some of the early saints in Ireland were called Druids. This was the name that was applied to them. And when you look at the historical reality of some of the earliest saints, like uh, St. Bridget, who's the female patron saint of Ireland, you realize there are very curious correlations between these individuals and Celtic gods, because Bridget had the name of a Celtic goddess, and the stories, some of the stories of her life say that she was brought up or fostered by a druid. So those elements of ritual do show a continuity between the Celts and Christianity. Jake, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. Yeah, when you look at the maps and the charts in your book, you can see that this is all cohesive, and it's like there's a grand plan, and it's not some 
creepy theory about visitors from outer space. These are real people uh, who could uh, sell the Romans some wine when they decided to take them over. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Graham, when you when you go sightseeing today, or let's say you've got a friend that's new to this and wants to be just uh, really impressed by how misunderstood and, and relatively sophisticated the Celtic culture was, where's one place you'd take us just to, to really be able to marvel at, at this civilization? Uh, that's a very difficult question because um, on the surface, so little remains. Actually, museums are priceless in this respect because you can go to Celtic hill forts and see things on a grand scale and you can, you can go to these places that do give you a sense mm-hmm. of belonging to a much wider landscape. But you also have to go with a digital camera or a powerful magnifying glass to the museums and see the same kind of impressive organization on a very, very small scale. Mm-hmm. And it's best to go prepared because of what I often found was in Vienne, for example, south of Lyon in southern France, I knew they had a fantastic collection of Celtic gold coins. And I spoke to the deputy curator there because I couldn't find them anywhere. They weren't on display. And she said, no, the director said that no one would be interested. And I asked her, why would there be this lack of interest in the Celts? And she said, uh, because they lost to the Romans. It's so true. I mean, I can think of many times I've been in a museum in, in Britain or, or even beyond, and I've looked at something, I've squinted at it, it's so exquisite and delicate, and I go, oh, those Romans were amazing. And then I realized, no, it's Celtic. These are the people the Romans <laughs> defeated. And it reminds me, we've got a lot to learn when it comes to the Celts. Yes, we do. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of Middle-Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts, thanks so much for this uh, a lot of work you've put into this. This is an amazing story, and it, you've really hit on something. We just don't appreciate the Celtic uh, civilization as we might, and as travelers, I think you've done, a, done us a huge favor. Thanks and best wishes. Thanks very much, Rick. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com. 